Today's scripture comes from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, verses 13 to 18. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees, and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make temporary shelters, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua son of Nun until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. So one of my favorite types of shows to watch are survival shows. And I love the kinds of shows that really test and push the limits of what people can endure. So I'm talking about the kinds of shows where there is no food, there is no water, there's no shelter, there's no nothing. The only thing that there are are the, you know, nature's elements and undomesticated beasts that are surrounding you and can threaten your life at any moment. And there are times when I watch these kinds of shows and I think to myself, occasionally, you can do that. You can do that for two weeks. Only to hear my wife Hannah say, trust me, you couldn't do that for two hours, let alone two weeks. And she's probably right. But what I could do is glamping for two weeks. And glamping, of course, is a fusion of glamour and camping into one. And it's a way of experiencing nature without having to suffer from uh, nature's hand. Well, this passage, believe it or not, is all about camping. And God wants his people to go camping every year for a full week. But he doesn't want them to go glamping. He actually wants them to go camping. He wants them to go out into the wilderness, grab sticks, grab branches, and make shelter for themselves. Tents, or, or what they would refer to as booths. And to actually live in those tents for an entire week. And so the question is, why? Why does God want them to do this? Well, for those of you who are joining us for the first time today, uh, we've been doing a series in the book of Nehemiah. And to give some context into this story, the people of God have just experienced a second mosaic-like exodus. And so the first exodus was from out of Egypt to a new home. But the second exodus is not out of Egypt this time, but it's out of Babylon to their old home. And once they return home to their old home after 70 years of being away in exile, what they discover is that the home that they once knew has become a dystopian wasteland. Their temple is destroyed. 
Their city is ravaged. Their walls are in crumbles. And so what they do is they, they do their best impersonation of fixer-upper and they rebuild their temple. They rebuild their city. They rebuild their walls. And over the course of time, what they discover as they're rebuilding everything is actually the Bible. And for them, the Bible is the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Keep in mind again, this is 400 years prior to Jesus being born. So really the Torah or the Pentateuch, this is, this is their Bible. And so they discover their Bible. And, and the reason why this is so, so important is this. When the people of God were exiled in Babylon, they not only lost their language and their culture, but they lost their religion in many ways. And so when they return back home and rediscover the Bible, they ask Ezra to dust off you know, the Bible and to open up its pages and to read it to them. And when Ezra does so, this is what he reads in verses 14, 16, and 17. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. So the post-exilic community asked Ezra to dust off the Bible and to read it for them. And as he's reading it to them, what they discover is that God tells Moses to tell the people that every year, once a week, they're called to go out into the wilderness and make temporary shelters or booths and to actually live in them. And so the question is, why? Why does God want them to do this? Well, there's a high, high probability that when Ezra was reading the Word of God, what he was reading was a portion from Leviticus 23. How do we know that? Well, this is what it says. Live in temporary shelters for seven days, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. So why does God want the people of God and all their descendants after them to live in these temporary shelters? It's so that they always remember the Exodus journey of the people of God years and years ago. But here's the other question. Why does he want them to remember that? What's the big deal if they forget? And secondly, why does he want us to remember the Exodus journey? And why doesn't he want us to forget? Well, let me give us three reasons why. Here's the first. Um, one of the most powerful phrases associated with 9-11 is the phrase, never forget. And I think that's a powerful phrase because by nature, we are forgetful creatures. And so it's important for us to remember this event in our nation's history. This is particularly important for me because uh, I lost a good friend on that day. And even though it's been 20 years, I never, ever want to forget him. And so obviously the, the anniversary on 9-11 is a helpful way of remembering my friend again, but there, there is actually another way. Uh, one of the playgrounds that my girls like to play on uh, is behind this library. 
And when you're leaving the library, the street that you have to take to exit is actually named after my friend. And so every time I see this street, uh, this street sign with his name on it, I am reminded of him. And I'm thankful for that because I never want to forget him. And in similar fashion, God wants his people to never forget. He always wants them to remember the wilderness journey that the people of God went through years ago. And so what he does is he tells Moses to put in their G-Cal seven feasts at different points of the year uh, to help them remember the wilderness journey, the pilgrimage that the people of God went on. Now, I'm not going to go through all seven of these feasts. One of them is Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Uh, but the, the, final, the final feast, the seventh and final one, is this feast called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents, where, again, they, they go camping for a full week. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because unless we have healthy rhythms and cadences in our GCAL, we cannot have a robust spiritual life. As I mentioned before, by nature, we are forgetful creatures. We suffer from spiritual amnesia. And so what that means is that we need, we need healthy cadences in our lives to remember who we really are, where we are, who God is, what he has done, what he will do, lest we forget all of these things and get our identity hijacked by all these other things. And so this is the reason why at Exilic we have Sunday weekly worship. This is why at Exilic we have communion groups every other week. This is why we have the Lord's Supper every month. This is why we have noon prayer Monday through Friday. This is why we have uh, Christmas, uh, Good Friday, and Easter to celebrate uh, Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection. And so we need healthy cadences and rhythms in our life if we're going to have a spiritually robust life. Because the truth of the matter is, we all have rhythms and cadences. The question is, are they good ones? So, you know, the person that sleeps all day, that's a rhythm and a cadence. Checking social media all day, that's a rhythm and cadence. Uh, working out three times a week, that's a rhythm and cadence. So the question is, are your current rhythms and cadences spiritually healthy or not? So think about that for a moment. Monitor your daily life your weekly life. Do you feel like right now you have, a, you have a healthy spiritual rhythm and cadence to your schedule or not? And if not, what are you going to do about it to change it? I like what uh, Rich Velotis says, who is uh, a pastor out in Queens. And he says, if Jesus spent eight hours a day, every day, for three years with his disciples, he would have spent over 8,000 hours with them. And after all that time, they still had significant gaps. And we think one hour a week on Sunday morning is gonna change people? Not a chance. So I just wanna share two tips that I think could be helpful for us to, to get healthy, healthier spiritual rhythms and cadences into our life. So here's the first, if, if you don't plan your day, your day will plan you. So what can you intentionally and strategically do to carve out some time for God in your day today? Because guess what? 
Any good and healthy relationship always, always takes work. So why would it be any different with our relationship with God? So for you, it could be just hopping on and joining us for noon prayer Monday through Friday, 15 minutes a day, uh, which has been going really, really well. And it's always easier to do things in the context of community than by yourself. So it could be joining noon prayer. There, there was another brother um, in, in my newcomer CG that uh, I've, come, I've come to deeply respect and appreciate. And he works in finance and we were having care group this week and you know he was sharing um, how he on an average day he works 90 hours and um, this past week he worked 110 hours and so how does someone like that who's working so hard how does he incorporate healthy spiritual rhythms and cadences into his life and so we talked about it and so one of the things that he does is that when he's working he listens to worship music all day and so for him, he quite literally listens to over 90 hours of worship music a week, over 90 hours. Um, but it's a tangible way for him to, in, to carve out that time and space for God. And obviously, he's not singing to God during that whole time, but it's a helpful way to remember who God is and who he is and what God has done for him. And so similarly for you, based upon your schedule, your daily rhythms and, and, and whatever, you know, whatever that might look like, because it's different for all of us, what can you practically do uh, to plan your day with him? Okay, plan your day or your day will plan you. Here's the second thing. Um, learn to say no to something good, to say yes to something better. Now I need, the, the preacher needs to take his own advice because I am terrible at saying no. I wanna say yes to everything, but over the years I've learned to say no to something good, to say yes to something better. And so sometimes it might be a speaking engagement that I wanna do, but I have to say no so that I can do something better. And that better could just be spending more time with my kids. But this is something that we need to um, have in terms of boundaries if we're gonna have particularly um, healthy spiritual rhythms um, and practices and cadences in our life as well. And so he, here's, here's my big point. We all have the same 24 hours in the day. And so the question is not whether we have the time, the question is whether we have the appetite and the desire to be with God or not. And so these are, having healthy rhythms and cadences are really, really important to help us remember again who God is, who we are, where we are, and what God has done for our lives. But there's a second reason why God wants them to go camping every year. It's not just to remember the past, but it's also for them to remember their present situation. And here's what he wants them to remember. Just because you guys are out of Egypt, just because you guys are out of Babylon now, it doesn't mean that you're home yet. And so you might have a permanent home now with West Elm furniture, Pottery Barn furniture, and you might be in this new promised land, but guess what? You're still not home yet. Anything east of Eden is still exile, and I never want you to forget that you are still on a pilgrimage journey. And so the point of them going on this trip was not only to remember the past, but it's also to remember their present pilgrimage as well. And one of the best ways of remembering that we are still living east of Eden where there are now thistles and thorns is by the thistles and thorns that we face and we're pricked by, by pain, suffering, and death.
You know, last week I was uh, brutally reminded of that right after our Sunday online service was over. Uh, my wife Hannah and I, we go to the kitchen and grandma and grandpa say, Logan, our oldest daughter, she is coughing uncontrollably. And I look at her and I could clearly see that something was, was wrong because her, her face was turning, you know, reddish. And so I, I asked them, you know, did she eat anything? And they just said that she had a bite of a pastry. Uh, but it said that it had no nuts in it. And my, my oldest daughter, Logan, is highly, highly allergic to nuts. And, um, but I, I could see that something was off because she kept coughing and it was hard for her to breathe because she was coughing so incessantly. And so, so we give her some Benadryl, we have the EpiPen ready, and we are off to the ER. And we are driving like in a scene from Mad Max all the way to the ER. And we finally get to the pediatric ER. I'm holding my daughter. I'm like, you have to do something, please. My daughter, she, she's, she can't, it's hard for her to breathe. And so they whisk her away um, uh, to the room and she has this oxygen mask over her face. She's injected with steroids. And, and there is almost nothing more painful and there is almost nothing as painful of an image as seeing a child with an oxygen mask over their face. There are very few things in life that are as painful as that. And, you know, here we are sitting in the ER for the next four hours just waiting to see how our daughter is. And, you know, as much as I want to protect my daughter from, from any danger, the truth of the matter is I can't even protect her from a bite of a pastry with peanut powder on it. And so I would love to surround her in bubble wrap for the rest of her life and she probably wouldn't appreciate me if I did that. But in all honesty, even if I did, I still wouldn't be able to protect her anyway because you know what? One day I will die. And you know what? One day she is gonna die anyway. And the reason for that is because we live on this side of Eden where there is pain and suffering. But you know what? You know what my hope is? That even though we die, one day we shall live. And the reason for that is because Jesus died, but he rose again in power and in glory. And because of him, he has paved a way for us as well. And so the third thing that, um, that we have to remember as uh, the people of God uh, go on this wilderness, you know, mimic this wilderness experiences, not only to remember the past, not only to remember their present, that they're still in exile, but most importantly is to remember who Jesus is. You know, when the people of God are in that 40-year wilderness experience, how does God provide for them and sustain them? He gives them manna from heaven, he gives them water from a rock, he is their GPS system as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night leading them. And you know what all these things point to? Jesus. Jesus is the manna from heaven. He is the bread of life, which is why he says that he who eats of me will never, ever hunger again. Jesus is that water from the rock, which is why Jesus says, I am the living water. He who drinks of me will never thirst again. Jesus is the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. He is our GPS system leading us to the promised land. And do you know how I know that? When you take a look at the uh, one of the final verses in verse 17, it says this, from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, 
Until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it, meaning the Feast of Booths, like this, and their joy was very great. So here, Nehemiah mentions Joshua. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with Joshua, I know that you're familiar with Moses. Moses was the one that led the people of God out of Egypt, out of slavery, uh, into the wilderness. But who was the one that led the people of God from the wilderness to the promised land? It wasn't Moses. Moses died in the wilderness. So who led them into the promised land? It was Joshua. So the proverbial torch was passed from Moses to Joshua, and he was the one that led and guided the people to their new home. Now, why am I mentioning all this? I'm mentioning this because that Joshua was pointing to a greater Joshua that was yet to come. It was really, really interesting. If Jesus had a driver's license today, you know what name would be on that license? It's not Jesus. That name would be Yeshua. Jesus' brothers, sisters, mother, and father, they all called him Yeshua because that was his Aramaic name. And you know what the translation of Yeshua is into English? It's Joshua. So the question is, why do we call him Jesus? Well, in the first century world, when Greek became the lingua franca of the day, uh, which is why the New Testament is written in Greek, the translation of Yeshua into Greek is Jesus. And the translation of Jesus into English is Jesus. But what everyone would have called him uh, during his time was Yeshua or Joshua. And what that Joshua did by leading the people of God from the wilderness to the, their new home, a greater Joshua would do as he leads us through this wilderness journey of life to our new home as well. And you, so you know what that means? If you're a Christian, here's what that means. Uh, your passport might say U.S. on it or uh, whatever, country you, where, whatever country you might be from, but your true citizenship is in the new heavens and the new earth. And so what that means is that uh, this life, this world uh, filled with pain and suffering, this, this is as close as it will get for you to hell. It will only get better. This is the closest you will ever get to experiencing hell. But if you're not a Christian, you know what that means? Even within your own secular worldview, so I'm not saying anything inconsistent from your own worldview, this life, this world, filled with viruses, pandemics, racism, human trafficking, cancer, this life, this world, this is your heaven. And it will only get worse for you when you cease to exist forever. But if you become a Christian, this is the closest you will ever get to experiencing hell. It will only get better. But you know what? We not only have the hope of heaven, you also have to know that God is with you during the trials and tribulations you face in this wilderness. Uh, as I mentioned before, when the people of God were wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, there was a pillar of cloud and fire that led them by day and by night. But God not only led them and guided them, he was also with them as well. He dwelt amongst them. There was a big tent that they carried wherever they went, and this big tent was called a tabernacle. A tabernacle is basically a portable temple on wheels, and it was inside this big tent 
that God dwelt with the people, amongst the people. He tabernacled with them. It was really cool. In John, you know what it says? The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst them. That word dwelt is also the word tabernacle. And so here's what it means. In the Old Testament, God dwells in this physical structure. In the New Testament, God dwells in a suit of skin. He becomes flesh. He becomes like one of us. But obviously, he dies, resurrects, and ascends. So the question now is, if that's how God dwelt in the Old Testament in a structure, in the New Testament, in human flesh, how does he dwell with us today? Because he does. And the way that he dwells within us is because we are now that temple. And his spirit dwells within us. And I think about that, the idea that God is, this idea of union with Christ, that God dwells within me. And I wonder what kind of confidence, quiet confidence I would have if I were to only remember that day in and day out. If I were to only remember that through my pains, sorrows, and difficulties, if I were to only remember that God is with me and he is in me, how differently I would approach life. Because the truth of the matter is, he is, he that is in you is greater than he that is in this world. So I want to close with um, one quote from K. Arthur that uh, I think can help us. And she says, the people we admire most are those who have suffered most and yet endured with grace. Those who bear with continued suffering capture our deepest respect. And in their suffering, we find ourselves drawn to the Jesus who dwells within them. Perhaps more than anything else, courage means persevering, enduring, overcoming. It means stickability and steadfastness. Friends, I, I want you to know that no matter what you are facing at this juncture of your life, that Christ is in you. He will not only lead you and guide you, but he is with you and dwells within every one of us. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, this, uh, no matter how much we, we, you know, have creaturely comforts and, and make this world our home, uh, we are reminded that um, it is filled with suffering, pain, and sorrow, and death. But we thank you that we have the hope of heaven, and we thank you that you are not only guiding us there, but you are with us every step that we take. And so as we live this exilic life, help us to remember that your presence is thick in the midst of us. And we're just thankful that uh, you do not abandon us, but you're with us every step that we take. In your name I pray. Amen.